in those hours. A couple of hours till sunup. When you left the house in Smyrna, you knew you'd have to get back and get all the day's work done. Because this was that special day. And so down the dark streets you walk. Past the great hill of Pagas and look up on the top and see that imposing structure of the great temple of Zeus Acrius. Its great columns visible against the starlight. Just down the hill from it, the temple of Sybil, and down from that now, almost 300 years old, the temple to the goddess Roma. Rome worshiped as a deity. All of this power, all of this opulence, all of this wealth. And you would have felt very small, powerless, outcast. You walk down, the broad streets begin to narrow and you turn into one of the shabbier sections of the great city of Smyrna. Finally, coming down one of the side streets, you come to a house. You can see other people walking in the shadows. You nod. No one talks. You really don't want to be noticed. Finally, you come up and knock quietly on the door. It opens, and you're invited inside. The room is crowded. Most everyone there is like you, a slave or a poor freedman. Not the powerful people, not the wealthy people, and yet the room is crowded and filled with excitement because they had heard the same things you had heard. It had come, the writing, from the old man on Patmos, the scroll, and with it a letter written by Jesus to this church, your church, so you gather in this room with all of the others and soon there is an opening prayer and some singing and then it grows very quiet. You can see the scroll so fresh it makes a, a crinkling sound as it's unrolled and the old man gives it to one of the younger men to read who has a, a, a clear voice and easy to hear and as he unrolls the scroll you lean forward you bend your head, you close your eyes. These are the words that are written by John. And you are hearing them for the first time. And so he reads. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Good morning, church. I'm Tom Lawson. I teach at Ozark. And I was absolutely thrilled, um, maybe three or four weeks ago, when Mark Christian 
uh, contacted me and asked me if I would like to talk about worship. Worship in this amazing book, which is so much about worship that it's been called the ultimate worship wars. And I didn't hesitate a moment before I, I accepted. Ever since I have uh, um, been a follower of Christ, ever since I've been um, involved in traveling when I was at Ozark and later teaching, I've been fascinated by worship. Worship in all of its sound and varieties, worship in different places and cultures and times, not so much the sounds of a particular style of music or a particular kind of worship as that sound behind the sound, the sound of human hearts longing, reaching upward toward God in praise and adoration. And the opportunity to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about worship and about what this book has to say to us about worship is something I was just honored um, when I was asked to be able to um, come and to share with you. Would you join me in just a brief prayer? Because I don't know um, all of you. I actually see some faces that I know, and those are people I don't actually like very much. So the rest of you... <laughs> Um, let's pray that it would not be me talking to you, it would be God speaking to all of us this morning and unfolding in our hearts and in our imaginations that incredible story of the worship of God. Holy Father, Lord, we have not begun worship this morning. It started before we were here. It started before we were born. It started before creation itself, and we join the angels around the throne when we sing, holy, holy, holy. God, I pray that you would help us to open our hearts and our minds and our imaginations to the richness and the beauty and the power and the joy of worshiping you. Through Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy, the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, we pray. Amen. In some ways, this is not a book encouraging you to worship. Interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't really do that very much. The reality is, I don't need to encourage you to worship. To be human is to be a worshiper. The question is not, will we worship? The question is only, what will we worship? This book is not really about the choice between worship or non-worship. It's only the choice between who you worship and how you are to worship that one. That's what we mean by the worship wars. It's not a war between those who worship and those who don't. It is a war between all human beings, homo liturgicus, because we're all that, as Smith says in his book, Desiring the Kingdom. We are all creatures of worship. So this is a book calling upon us, showing us how essential, how critical, how valuable, how wonderful, how exciting, and sometimes how fearful it is to worship the living God. 
the book unfolds with a series of images. And we won't go into them in detail. I just want to point them out so that you can look for them later. In chapter 4, we have unfolding for us this great scene of worship around the throne, where here you have a throne, and around it is lightning and thunder and a sea, and then coming there are going to be the four living creatures and 24 elders, and they are going to fall down, they're going to cast their crowns, and they're going to give their worship to God because of creation. God who has created all things. And then as it... Um, moves on in, into chapter 5. We begin with this anguish because there is a scroll and it's got seals on it that no one can break and there's this despair in heaven. Who can be found worthy to break the seal? And then there he comes, a lamb that was slain. And then you hear not only the four living creatures and the 24 elders, but now every created thing and worship is given to Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain from before the foundation of the world, and it is done with a loud voice. In chapter 7, worship is described as coming from a great multitude beyond counting and from angels, and from the elders, and from the four living creatures, and from all of those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and worship is given to Jesus and to God because of salvation. And they will stand around the throne, and they're going to change and wear clothes of white, and they're going to have palm branches in their hands, and they're going to cry out, and they're going to fall down on their faces, and they're going to sing praises to God. In chapter 11, those who survive the terrible plagues and the earthquake begin to worship 24 elders, all of those who are in heaven, all of those who dwell upon the earth, and worship is given to God because the kingdom of this Lord has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And George Frederick Handel picked this up and in, in that great chorus where he has everyone then singing, Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Words taken directly from this book. <coughs> Chapter 14. The redeemed are delivered. 144,000, four living creatures, the elders, all created things because the lamb is worshipped, because they've been purchased by his blood, and they're going to sing with loud voices and with harps, and they're going to sing a new song, and they're going to give God glory. And then in chapter 19, the big one. There's a great multitude in heaven, 24 elders, four living creatures. God is worshipped on his thrones because his judgment is right because of his victory, because God reigns, because of the marriage um, a feast of the Lamb, because the church is clothed as the bride of Christ. They're going to sing with loud voices and praises. They're going to fall down. They're going to shout amen. They're going to shout hallelujah. There's going to be a great sound and many waters and thunder and lightning. <coughs> but if you ask most evangelicals, did you go to worship this week? They'll talk about it. Time like this. Well, what'd you do in worship? Well, we sat down. That's what you are doing right now. And then, for part of it, we stood up. And then we sat back down. And then we stood back up. And if you're radicals, we lifted our hands. 
Yeah, all right. But look at what this book is unfolding. People who fall down on the ground, people who throw their crowns, their victor's crowns, people who play harps, who play loud trumpets, who shout, who sing, who weep, who cry. Do you ever get the feeling we're missing something? How do you worship God? It's like asking, how do you tell someone you love them? <coughs> well, you sit, and you stand, and you sit, and you stand, and you sit, and you stand. You tell someone you love them through a myriad of ways. In many ways, one of the things we really miss in our understanding of worship is how much worship is connected to our bodies. You see, your body is part of who you are. That's what the Bible's message is. Don't buy into the idea. It really comes from the Greeks. We all blame them for everything. That, you know, the real you is inside you and the body is something foreign. No, God made you body and spirit, both human. You worship with your hands, with your eyes, with your legs, with your arms. You can worship with dancing. I was going to do a little dance for you right now, but I'll hold off on that. <coughs> but I was reading an account of an Anglican um, guy who was in uh, what would now be Kenya, the early part of the 1900s. Uh, he was there sharing the gospel. He went into this village. Uh, they already had a church there. This is an Anglican church, very proper, very, very British and Anglican. Except this lady started standing up and dancing in church, dancing in church. And they had never seen this before. This is an Anglican priest standing there watching this lady dancing. And he, he wasn't offended. He just didn't understand exactly what was going on. He finally went to her and he asks, you know, what are you doing? And she said, oh, she said, I can't help it. She said, I've got so much praise, it just has to come out of my toes. Just filling me up. Just got to come out, pour out through my toes. Every part of us, body, soul, and spirit, can be involved in worship. But I want to back up and talk about a simple part of worship. I mean, it would be wonderful if next week everybody came here in church and you brought harps and trumpets and you fell down and cast your crowns and stood up and put your arms up and danced for a while and changed clothes and all dressed in white and all of those kinds of things. Now, mind you, it would probably surprise Mark, and he would be a little bit, uh, you know, not. But it would be nice if we. But let me deal with something that we've already covered that is actually simpler. Look at the opening words. Blessed is the one who reads, and those who hear. What's this picture? One who reads and those who hear. Just like we saw at the very beginning. The idea that you'll be in a room, someone's going to open up the Word of God and is going to read it aloud, and the church is going to listen to the Word read. Listening. Listening's powerful. Now, I wear hearing aids. Yes, I know. It's when your parents tell you when you were young, don't listen to that loud music. One day you'll ruin your hearing. And you go, ah, Mom, what do you know? A lot more than I thought she did, okay? But we're going to have a little bit of a listening test here this morning. If you've ever been to a hearing test, you've already been to something like this. I'm going to have them play a little bit of a recording. You're not going to hear anything at first, so don't be troubled that there's nothing going on. It's going to start out really soft, and then very gradually they're going to put the sound up, and it's going to be someone talking. You'll probably be able to tell it's the voice of someone talking, 
but I want you to wait, and when you can understand what's being said, I want you to put your hand up and just kind of hold it up for a second. I'm not going to have you do anything other than put your hand up, but I want to kind of see when you can understand this. Be a little bit of a test to see who's got the really good hearing here. Uh, for some of us, we'll be at the very end. I think I can understand it now. Okay, that's okay. Just listen, and if we go ahead and start this, put your hand up when you can hear it, when you can understand it. I see those hands. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. All right, I see those hands. And since I grew up Baptist, by the way, it just feels so good to say that in church. I see that hand. All right. But what I want to tell you is what you all look like. Every one of you. I was, I was, I was, I was looking. There's a universal human thing we all do when we're listening. When we're really listening, I mean really giving ourselves to listen, first thing you have to do is you've got to turn off your eyes because your eyes interfere with your ears. You can't listen as well when your eyes are doing something. So many of you closed your eyes. Others of you did what is uh, referred to as defocusing your eyes. And that is you kind of look down, but you sort of weren't looking at anything in particular. Just kind of not look, just sort of look... And many of you tilted your head slightly. It's another human reaction that seems to be wired into us physically because it's so common. You know, I mean, tilt your head slightly. I normally wait and kind of do that when somebody's singing just a little off pitch, and it's almost like I could just push the note up just a little. Please, just a little. It never really works, but I don't know. It just feels like something to do. But that's not how you looked when scripture was read. We're blessed and we're cursed to be after Gutenberg. Gutenberg is the one responsible for inventing uh, the kind of printing press that uses uh, a type that can be moved and can be replaced. So with the coming of Gutenberg in the middle of the 1400s and ever since then, we've had the ability to print books and to print them relatively cheaply with, uh, you know, um, without having much cost to them. Before Gutenberg, not very many people had books. If you were a wealthy aristocrat in Europe, you might have 50 or 100 books. That'd be a sign of a very wealthy... Most ordinary people would have none. And in the early centuries of the church, almost no one would have had a book. And if they would have had it, it would have been separate scrolls. So the Word of God was what you went to church to hear read aloud by human voice. And you thought of it that way. You thought the Word is something I'm going to hear. Not something I'm going to have in my pocket or have in my house or take home and study. Something that's got chapter numbers and verse numbers that almost seems to invite us. Pulling it out and, and, and treating it like a textbook or worse yet, like a magic book. You know, it's got these verse numbers and so forth. So we're almost invited to like have duels with, with each other by pulling our little magic verses out. Take this, Acts 2.38. Aha, take this, Ephesians 2.8. No, no. 1 Peter 3, 21, oh, you got me, just over, you know, 
We treat it like that, like it's these magic formulas. We've got to put a little bit here and a bit there and a bit there. Years ago, Seth Wilson said, we treat the Bible like it's blowny. Because blowny is the same thing no matter where you slice it. Take a slice from this end of the loaf, take a slice from this end of the loaf, you slap them together, you got a blowny sandwich. Doesn't matter where you pull it, just a slice here, a slice there, a slice there. When you hear the word, it doesn't come with verse numbers. It doesn't come with chapter numbers. It comes to us in living language. This is the only language that really is language, what you're listening to right now. And surprisingly enough, you're not stopping to analyze my words. You're not choosing, you know, well, why is he using that word? That word is from a uh, Middle English background. I wonder what that word meant 500 years ago. You're not doing that. You're not uh, even selecting part of something I said you know, three or four uh, sentences ago and comparing it to something I'm going to say later. You're listening to it the way we all experience language, from a living voice with cadence and inflection, with pauses and emphasis. That's how the word of God was experienced. And that's what the assumption is. Just listen to a few passages drawn at random. Uh, Exodus 24, Moses reads aloud the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 2, hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob. Ezekiel 2, God tells Ezekiel, speak the words of God to this people, whether they refuse to listen or whether they actually Listen, Hosea 4, hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 7, Jesus says, those who hear my words and do not do them are like this guy. Those who hear my words and do them are like the man who builds his house upon the rock. Romans chapter 10, how will people believe unless they hear the word? How will they hear unless someone is sent? Colossians chapter 4 pictures the same thing we have pictured at the beginning of this book where he says, after you have read this letter aloud in the church, take it over to Laodicea and have them read it aloud. Take the letter I wrote to that church and bring it back and have it read aloud in your church as well. Paul tells Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 3, the Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, and over and over Jesus says, if you have ears, use them. Do you understand when you are reading your Bible? First of all, you can do that by yourself. In the ancient church, the Word of God was always what you experienced with other believers. You didn't go off by yourself and study. The other thing is, when you're reading the Bible alone, how many of us have had this experience? You can start when you want, stop when you want, and you can even have this experience, getting to the bottom of a page and suddenly realizing you have no idea what you read. I mean, you're, you know, the brain was going, the eyes were moving, but you have no idea what you read. Somehow you were drifting. That's the nature of reading something. It's actually using a different part of your brain than listening. But when you listen to the Word of God, you surrender control to somebody else. And you hear it read with inflection. You hear it read by a human voice. You hear the Word of God through human flesh. A living voice. That's called incarnation. The enfleshment of the Word of God. 
the early church, when they came to church, when they came to worship, they came to hear from God. Now, they would not be upset if they also heard from their pastor. They would not be upset if they also sang. But they came to hear the word of God. And when God's word was read, I'm absolutely sure, they closed their eyes, they defocused, they bent their heads, they leaned forward, they gave every bit of attention. You say, well, we have a written word in front of us, that's just as good. Journal for the study of memory and cognition about 10 years ago did a study in which it took a speech and they had it recorded, so they transcribed it into written form. And they gave a group of people the speech in written form. And they said, you know, read this. They gave a second group of people uh, the speech just as, as a um, um, recording. And they said, here, just want you to listen to this. And the third group, they got the recording and the written form. And then later, they simply asked all three groups what was the main thrust of the speech, what were the main points, and so forth. Which of the three groups scored the highest every time? The middle group, listening only. You already showed me that. When you really listen, you turn your eyes off. I've been in the habit now for several years when I am in church in the presence of the living church, the bride of Christ, and I can hear the word of God read aloud by a living voice in that present moment. I close my eyes. Oh, I have a copy of the Bible with me so you'll know I'm an evangelical. But at that moment, I have the experience of being able to do what the ancient church was able to do, to listen to God's word read. And I try to give every bit of my... And I try to use what Eugene Peterson called once, new ears. I try to imagine, just like we set up at the beginning, what if this was being read for the first time? What if you were hearing it for the first time? What if nobody had used part of that as a proof text or a verse number? What if you just didn't even think of verse numbers? What if you just heard it like it was God speaking? Wow. You know, it takes just a little over an hour to listen to this book in its entirety. All the visions of John on Patmos, all the book, it's a little over an hour. Just to listen to it. Notice it doesn't say, blessed is the one who understands, figures out, decodes. You know, that's what we always want to do when we read it. You know, what does this mean? And the seventh trumpet, and what does this mean? And the sun turned to, and these things here that have, you know, these bugs with these stinging tails, it's just helicopters and so forth. And then where is Hillary Clinton in this? I heard she was in there somewhere. And, and, and all of these sorts of things. And blessed is the one who listens. A number of years ago, Linda and I went up into the Adirondack Mountains, upstate New York, beautiful uh, wilderness area, the largest wilderness area in the United States, outside Alaska, upstate New York. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles of just mountains. We went up there and were there on kind of a vacation from our church. Uh, for a few days, get a little bit of a break. It was one night, it was in October, so it's already cold, and the, sky, and the night sky is just black as can be, as, as, uh, with stars, and uh, just a cold night. You could see the frost on your breath, but we went outside, and we played a recording of this book. And we just listened. Just listened. 
didn't try to understand it, didn't try to decipher it, just listened. And not just listening, but trying to imagine, trying to see what is John describing. And this scene where I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I looked up and there was one like of the Son of Man. This great, huge image and yet the face is like the sun, the feet are like burnished bronze, the eyes are like flaming fire. Trying to imagine that. I can understand why John would fall down as if one dead and then this great frightening image reaches over and says, John, it's just me, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Trying to imagine these seven churches and then we're taken in chapter four to that great scene around the throne and the crystal sea and all of the praises of God, just trying to see all of this. And as I'm listening, something interesting happens. The longer I listen, the less I'm aware that I'm listening to a recording or even thinking about it. And the more I'm actually just seeing what the book is describing. I'm not focusing on the words. I'm focusing on what the words are trying to get me to think about. And as I'm thinking about it, pretty soon those thoughts become what I am experiencing. I am seeing these visions unfolding. I am seeing these seven bowls, these seven trumpets, these, this, this incredible scene, the dragon coming and chasing the woman and all of these frightening, wonderful, terrible things. I didn't understand it, but I was caught. Like watching a movie, you can't fully de decipher, but you can't turn your eyes away as every scene leads in to the next. And as you go from being afraid to, to being thrilled, as you go from agony to ecstasy, and as the movie begins to unfold. And then by the time I got to the end, something else had happened. I was no longer watching it. I was a participant. It's like, it's like I looked up and I saw heaven open, and there was one on a white horse. And his name was Faithful and True. And his eyes were like flaming fire and on his head were many diadems. And there behind him was the army of God on white horses. And he is called the Word of God, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I could see that scene unfolding and all of the multitude of heaven there for this triumphant scene, the Word of God. And then... New Jerusalem coming down. Then he's there, wrapping his arms around me. No more weeping. No more death. And suddenly I see this, this, this place I've been homesick for my whole life and have never seen before, this new earth this city with this river, and on the river there is the tree of life growing on both sides with fruit for the healing of the nations. And then I can hear the words over and over. The bride says, come. The spirit says, come. And the book ends. And Linda and I are just silent. What can you say? I don't know that I understood it any better. I don't know that I had some sudden key to what all the symbols meant, but I knew what the blessing was. Because I had seen the worship of God spread across the cosmos. I had seen the great war between God and Satan. I had seen the end. And I had seen the home that I have longed for and never really been to.
come, Lord Jesus. When they left that house in Smyrna and they began to go back, what do you think the experience was? Walking back past in the gray light of early dawn, past that great temple of Zeus across, across the top of the hill of Pegasus the city of Smyrna. I'll tell you what I think it was. I think if you'd been there, I think if you'd listened, I think if you'd listened with every fiber of your being, you would have walked back past all of those signs and symbols and symbols of opotent, powerful Rome. You would have shaken your head and said, how pathetic. How weak. Stone columns, golden idols. Ha! I have seen the heavens open. I have seen the cosmos torn apart and the universe renewed. I have been at the worship of the throne of God because I was taken there by listening in a room full of believers. And I can never think of what it means to be a child of God the same way again. Less than an hour. There'll be a link on the church's website if you don't have a copy of this book to listen to. A link that, so that you can just listen less than an hour. Sometime this week, would you make a commitment? Just sometime you would go somewhere and just give yourself to listening to the Word of God. Don't quit studying it. Don't quit having it in written form. But understand, this is not its natural form, the iPad, or your written form, either one. Its natural form is spoken aloud from one believer to another, from one human to another, from one heart to another. That's how the ancient church would have heard the word. You know something amazing about how to tell your wife that you love her? Candlelight dinners, flowers, diamond rings. Can I get an amen? Women, is there anything more powerful than someone who really listens to you? Leans forward, closes their eyes, focuses with every bit on what you have to say. Do you understand? Listening is a form of worship because it says, I love you. And I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Strip worship of everything else and it's still worship as long as God speaks and the church listens. That's the challenge. Will we give ourselves to worshiping God with harps and trumpets and falling down and casting crowns and ecstasy and dancing, but also with listening? 